Chapter 13, Part 1 of The Children of the Abbey. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Bethany McGill. The Children of the Abbey by Regina Maria Roche. Chapter 13, Part 1. But mine the sorrow, mine the fault, and well my life shall pay. I'll seek the solitude he sought, and stretch me where he lay. Goldsmith. To begin, then, as they say in a novel, without further preface, I was the only child of a country curate in the southern part of England who, like his wife, was of a good but reduced family. Contented dispositions and an agreeable neighborhood, ready on every occasion to oblige them, rendered them, in their humble situations, completely happy. I was the idol of both their hearts. Everyone told my mother I should grow up a beauty, and she, poor simple woman, believed the flattering tale. Naturally ambitious and somewhat romantic, she expected nothing less than my attaining, by my charms, an elevated situation. To fit me to it, therefore, according to her idea, she gave me all the showy instead of solid advantages of education. My father, being a meek, or rather an indolent man, submitted entirely to her direction. Thus, without knowing the grammatical part of my own language, I was taught to gabble bad French by myself, and, instead of vending or making my clothes, to flourish upon catgut and embroidered satin. I was taught dancing by a man who kept a cheap school for that purpose in the village. Music I could not aspire to, my mother's finances being insufficient to purchase an instrument. She was therefore obliged to content herself with my knowing the vocal part of that delightful science, and instructed me in singing a few old-fashioned airs with a thousand graces, in her opinion at least. To make me excel by my dress, as well as my accomplishments, all the misses of the village, the remains of her finery were cut and altered into every form which art or ingenuity could suggest. And, heaven forgive me, but my chief inducement in going to church on a Sunday was to exhibit my flounced silk petticoat and painted chip hat. While I attained my sixteenth year, my mother thought me, and supposed everyone else must do the same, the most perfect creature in the world. I was lively, thoughtless, vain, and ambitious to an extravagant degree. Yet, truly innocent in my disposition, and often, forgetting the appearance I had been taught to assume, indulged the natural gaiety of my heart and in a game of hide-and-go-seek amongst the haycocks in a meadow, by moonlight, enjoyed perfect felicity. Once a week, accompanied by my mother, I attended the dancing master's school to practice country dances. One evening we had just concluded a set, and were resting ourselves, when an elegant youth in a fashionable riding dress entered the room. His appearance at once excited admiration and surprise. Never shall I forget the palpitation of my heart at his approach. Every girl experienced the same, every cheek was flushed, and every eye sparkled with hope and expectation. He walked round the room with an easy, unembarrassed air, as if to take a survey of the company. He stopped by a very pretty girl, the miller's daughter. Good heavens, what were my agonies! My mother, too, who sat beside me, turned pale, and would actually, I believe, had fainted, had he taken any further notice of her. Fortunately, he did not, but advanced. My eyes caught his. He again paused, looking surprised and pleased, and, after a moment, passed in seeming consideration, bowed with the utmost elegance, and requested the honor of my hand for the ensuing dance. My politeness had hitherto only been in theory. I arose, dropped him a profound curtsy, assured him the honor would be all on my side, and I was happy to grant his request. He smiled, I thought, a little archly, and coughed to avoid laughing. I blushed and felt embarrassed. But he led me to the head of the room to call a dance, and my triumph over my companions so exhilarated my spirits that I immediately lost all confusion. 
I had been engaged to a young farmer, and he was enraged, not only at my breaking my engagement without his permission, but at the superior graces of my partner, who threatened to be a formidable rival to him. By jingo, said Claude, coming up to me in a surly manner, I think, Miss Fanny, you have not used me quite genteelly. I don't see why this here fine spark should take the lead of us all. Creature, cried I, with an ineffable look of contempt, which he could not bear, and retired grumbling. My partner could no longer refrain from laughing. The simplicity of my manners, notwithstanding the airs I endeavored to assume, highly delighted him. No wonder, cried he, the poor swains should be mortified at losing the hand of his charming Fanny. The dancing over, we rejoined my mother, who was on thorns to begin a conversation with the stranger, that she might let him know we were not to be ranked with the present company. I am sure, sir, said she, a gentleman of your elegant appearance must feel rather awkward in the present party. It is so with us, as, indeed, it must be with every person of fashion. But, in an obscure little village like this, we must not be too nice in our society, except, like a hermit, we can do without any. The stranger assented to whatever she said, and accepted an invitation to sup with us. My mother instantly sent an intimation of her will to my father, to have, not the fatted calf indeed, but the fatted duck prepared, and he and the maid used such expedition that, by the time we returned, a neat, comfortable supper was ready to lay on the table. Mr. Marlowe, the stranger's name, as he informed me, was all animation and affability. It is unnecessary to say that my mother, father, and myself were all complacence, delight, and attention. On departing, he asked and obtained permission, of course, to renew his visit the next day, and my mother immediately set him down as her future son-in-law. As everything is speedily communicated in such a small village as we resided in, we learned on the preceding evening he had stopped at the inn, and, hearing music, had inquired from whence it proceeded, and had gone out of curiosity to the dance. We also learned that his attendants reported him to be heir to a large fortune. This report, vain as I was, was almost enough of itself to engage my heart. Judge, then, whether it was not an easy conquest to a person, who, besides the above-mentioned attraction, possessed those of a graceful figure and cultivated mind. He visited continually at our cottage, and I, uncultivated as I was, daily strengthened myself in his affections. In conversing with him, I forgot the precepts of vanity and affectation, and obeyed the dictates of nature and sensibility. He soon declared the motives of his visits to me. To have immediately demanded my hand, he said, would have gratified the tenderest wish of his soul, but in his present situation that was impossible. Left at an early age, destitute and distressed by the death of his parents, an old whimsical uncle, married to a woman equally capricious, had adopted him as heir to their large possessions. He found it difficult, he said, to submit to their ill humor, and was confident if he took any step against their inclinations, he should forever forfeit their favor. Therefore, if my parents would allow a reciprocal promise to pass between us, binding each to each, the moment he became master of expected fortune or obtained an independence, he would make me a partaker of it. They consented, and he enjoined us to the strictest secrecy, saying one of his attendants was placed about him as a kind of spy. He had hitherto deceived him with respect to us, declaring my father was an intimate friend and that his uncle knew he intended visiting him. But my unfortunate vanity betrayed the secret it was so material for me to keep. I was bound, indeed, not to reveal it. One morning, a young girl who had been an intimate acquaintance of mine till I knew Marlowe came to see me. "'Why, Fanny,' cried she, "'you have given us all up for Mr. Marlowe. Take care, my dear, he makes you amends for the loss of your other friends.' "'I shall take your advice,' said I, with a smile and a conceited toss of my head. "'Faith, for my part,' continued she, 
I think you were very foolish not to secure a good settlement for yourself with Claude. With Claude, repeated I, with the utmost tidiness. Lord, child, you forget who I am. Who are you? exclaimed she, provoked at my insolence. Oh, yes, to be sure. I forget that you are the daughter of a poor country curate, with more pride in your head than money in your purse. Neither do I forget, said I, that your ignorance is equal to your impertinence. If I am the daughter of a poor country curate, I am the affianced wife of a rich man, and as much elevated by expectation as spirit above you. Our conversation was repeated throughout the village, and reached the ears of Marlowe's attendant, who instantly developed the real motive which detained him so long in the village. He wrote to his uncle an account of the whole affair. The consequence of this was a letter to poor Marlowe, full of the bitterest reproaches, charging him without delay to return home. This was like a thunderstroke to us all, but there was no alternative between obeying or forfeiting his uncle's favor. "'I fear, my dear Fanny,' cried he, as he folded me to his bosom a little before his departure, "'it will be long ere we shall meet again.' Nay, I also fear I should be obliged to promise not to write. If both these fears are realized, impute not either absence or silence to a want of the tenderest affection for you. He went, and with him all my happiness. My mother, shortly after his departure, was attacked by a nervous fever, which terminated her days. My father, naturally of weak spirits and delicate constitution, was so shocked by the sudden death of his beloved and faithful companion that he sunk beneath his grief. The horrors of my mind I cannot describe. I seemed to stand alone in the world, without one friendly hand to prevent my sinking into the grave, which contained the dearest objects of my love. I did not know where Marlowe lived, and, even if I had, durst not venture an application which might be the means of ruining him. The esteem of my neighbors I had forfeited by my conceit. They paid no attention but what common humanity dictated, merely to prevent my perishing. And that they made me sensibly feel. In this distress, I received an invitation from a schoolfellow of mine, who had married a rich farmer about forty miles from our village, to take up my residence with her till I was sufficiently recovered to fix on some plan for subsistence. I gladly accepted the offer, and after paying a farewell visit to the grave of my regretted parents, I set off in the cheapest conveyance I could find to her habitation, with all my worldly treasure packed in a portmanteau. With my friend, I trusted I should enjoy a calm and happy asylum till Marla was able to fulfill his promise and allow me to reward her kindness. But this idea she soon put to flight, by informing me, as my health returned, I must think of some method for supporting myself. I started, as of the utter annihilation of all my hopes. For, vain and ignorant of the world, I imagined Marlowe would never think of me if once disgraced by servitude. I told her I understood little of anything except fancy work. She was particularly glad, she said, to hear I knew that, as it would, in all probability, gain me admittance to the service of a rich old lady in the neighborhood, who had long been seeking for a person who could read agreeably and do fancy works, with which she delighted to ornament her house. She was a little whimsical, to be sure, she added, but well-timed flattery might turn those whims to advantage. And, if I regarded my reputation, I should not reject so respectable a protection. There was no alternative. I inquired more particularly about her, but how great was my emotion when I learned she was the aunt of Marlowe. My heart throbbed with exquisite delight at the idea of being in the same house with him. Besides, the service of his aunt would not, I flattered myself, degrade me as much in his eyes as that of another person. It was necessary, however, my name should be concealed, and I requested my friend to comply with my wish in that respect. She rallied me about my pride, which she supposed had suggested the request, but promised to comply with it. She had no doubt but her recommendation would be sufficient to procure me immediate admittance, and, accordingly, taking some of my work with me, I proceeded to the habitation of Marlowe. It was an antique mansion, surrounded with neat-clipped hedges, level lawns, and formal plantations. Two statues, cast in the same mold and resembling nothing either in heaven, earth, or sea, 
stood grinning horribly upon the pillars of a massy gate, as if to guard the entrance from impertinent intrusion. On knocking, an old porter appeared. I gave him my message, but he, like the statues, seemed stationary, and would not, I believe, have stirred from his situation to deliver an embassy from the king. He called, however, to a domestic, who, happening to be a little deaf, was full half an hour before he heard him. At last, I was ushered upstairs into an apartment, from the heat of which one might have conjectured it was under the torrid zone, though in the middle of July a heavy hot fire burned in the grate. A thick carpet, representing birds, beasts, and flowers, was spread on the floor, and the windows, closely screwed down, were heavy with woodwork and darkened with dust. The master and mistress of the mansion, like Darby and Joan, sat in armchairs on each side of the fire. Three dogs and as many cats slumbered at their feet. He was leaning on a spider table, poring over a voluminous book, and she was stitching a counterpane. Sickness and ill-nature were visible in each countenance. So, said she, raising a huge pair of spectacles at my entrance and examining me from head to foot, you are come from Mrs. Wilson's. Why, bless me, child, you are quite too young for any business. Pray, what is your name, and where do you come from? I was prepared for these questions, and told her the truth, only concealing my real name and the place of my nativity. "'Well, let me see those works of yours,' cried she. I produced them, and the spectacles were again drawn down. "'Why, they are neat enough, to be sure,' said she. "'But the design is bad, very bad indeed. "'There is taste, there is execution,' directing me to some pictures in heavy gilt frames hung round the room. I told her, with sincerity, I had never seen anything like them. "'To be sure, child,' exclaimed she, pleased at what she considered admiration in me. "'It is running a great risk to take you.' But if you think you can conform to the regulations of my house, I will, from compassion, and as you are recommended by Mrs. Wilson, venture to engage you. But remember, I must have no gadabout, no fly-flapper, no chatterer in my family. You must be decent in your dress and carriage, discreet in your words, industrious at your work, and satisfied with the indulgence of going to church on a Sunday. I saw I was about entering upon a painful servitude, but the idea of its being sweetened by the sympathy of Marlowe a little reconciled me to it. On promising all she desired, everything was settled for my admission into her family, and she took care I should perform the promises I made her. I shall not recapitulate the various trials I underwent from her austerity and peevishness. Suffice it to say, my patience, as well as taste, underwent a perfect martyrdom. I was continually seated in a frame, working pictures of her own invention, which were everything that was hideous in nature. I was never allowed to go out, except on a Sunday to church, or on a chance evening when it was too dark to distinguish colors. Marlowe was absent on my entering the family, nor durst I ask when he was expected. My health and spirits gradually declined from my close confinement. When allowed, as I have before said, of a chance time to go out, instead of enjoying the fresh air, I sat down to weep over scenes of former happiness. I dined constantly with the old housekeeper. She informed me one day that Mr. Marlowe, her master's young heir, who had been absent some time on a visit, was expected home on the ensuing day. Fortunately, the good dame was too busily employed to notice my agitation. I retired as soon as possible from the table, in a state of indescribable pleasure. Never shall I forget my emotions when I heard the trampling of his horse's feet and saw him enter the house. Vainly I endeavored to resume my work. My hands trembled, and I sunk back on my chair to indulge the delightful idea of an interview with him, which I believed to be inevitable. My severe taskmistress soon awakened me from my delightful dream. She came to tell me, I must confine myself to my own in the housekeeper's room, which, to a virtuous, discreet maiden, such as I appeared to be, she supposed would be no hardship, while her nephew, who was a young, perhaps rather a wild young man, remained in the house. When he again left it, which would soon be the case, I should regain my liberty. My heart sunk within me at her words, but, when the first shock was over, I consoled myself by thinking I should be able to elude her vigilance. 
I was, however, mistaken. She and the housekeeper were perfect Arguses. To be in the same house with Marlowe, yet without his knowing it, drove me almost distracted. I at last thought of an expedient, which I hoped would effect the discovery I wanted. I had just finished a piece of work which my mistress was I had just finished a piece of work which my mistress was delighted with. It was an enormous flower basket, mounted on the back of a cat, which held beneath its paw a trembling mouse. The raptures the old lady expressed at seeing her own design so ably executed, encouraged me to ask permission to embroider a picture of my own designing, for which I had the silks lying by me. She complied, and I set about it with alacrity. I copied my face and figure as exactly as I could, and, in mourning drapery and a pensive attitude, placed the little image by a rustic grave in the churchyard of my native village, at the head of which, half-embowered in trees, appeared the lovely cottage of my departed parents. These well-known objects, I thought, would revive, if indeed she was absent from it, the idea of poor Fanny in the mind of Barlow. I presented the picture to my mistress, who was pleased with the present, and promised to have it framed. The next day, while I sat at dinner, the door suddenly opened, and Marlowe entered the room. I thought I should have fainted. My companion dropped her knife and fork with great precipitation, and Marlowe told her he was very ill and wanted a cordial from her. She rose with a dissatisfied air to comply with his request. He, taking this opportunity of approaching a little nearer, darted a glance of pity and tenderness and softly whispered, Tonight at eleven o'clock, meet me in the front parlor. End of chapter 13, part 1